Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Nancy Weiss. Nancy, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Thank you. So I'm Nancy Weiss. I, um, until recently, was a professor at the University of Delaware, but my um, his by my um, history is having worked in kind of every setting there is for people with disabilities. What we're going to talk about today different from my work life is the advocacy that I've spearheaded for 35 years around this place in Massachusetts that we're about to get into where they use electric shock to punish people with disabilities. Um, I, like I was telling you off air, I, I use this as an example of describing if you could think in 2021 that there was this type of center, this Judge Rotenberg, I'm going to say it wrong again, Judge Rotenberg Center. Did I say it right? Rotenberg? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Rotenberg okay. is right. Yeah. But a uh, Rotenberg Center where there was electroconvulse or electro shocks being uh, applied to people with developmental disabilities and they shocked the kid so bad that he had third degree burns on the side of his head and now developed acute stress disorder people would go that sounds like a conspiracy or that sounds crazy that isn't happening and i go it is happening and you can look it up but when you pull it up on a wikipedia people go yeah but isn't this wikipedia it's like no this is real stuff and there's i was trying my hardest to get someone who like your like that worked in that or, or was able to talk about this more so people could be more educated on because the only people I could find were interviews of people with developmental disabilities. And I go, it wouldn't be fair for me to have them on the show to talk about this type of trauma or this type of pain and be able to really let people like, I mean, I get it, it's a firsthand experience, but what about people that are investigating this and working hard to shut this type of thing down? Because I would like you to educate the people out there about this center. I would like you to be able to say what you've done or just talk about some of the things that you feel like people should just be aware of. Because for me, like I said, like I told you, I have ADHD and that was considered uh, mentally like being mentally challenged and way back when I was in school. And it's like we're not giving enough credence. And I do give an area of leniency when it comes to the amount of understanding when it comes to development disabilities or what we call disabilities and now that we're learning more and more and we're being more advocate for them but there is people that get into these positions and they really abuse their power and it is it, it's just awful it's 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 horrible so this is a facility for people with disabilities but the interesting thing is now most states won't send people with disabilities there because it's so controversial. And so the people that they have are now recruiting are young people, student age people from mostly from New York City schools. And I've been interviewing people who are former residents and people end up going there. I mean, these aren't people with significant disabilities. These are people who, you know, and I say to them, well, how did you end up there? They tell, you know, well, uh, you know, I wasn't the easiest teenager. I cut school a lot. Um, I got in trouble for, you know, hanging out with the wrong crowd. One guy said, um, my parents were getting divorced and the judge wanted me to choose which one I was going to live with. And I didn't want to get, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to get involved in that. So he said, maybe it would be better for me to just be in a facility for a while. I mean, these aren't even people with severe disabilities. But for many years, it was a facility for people with significant cognitive disabilities and other kinds of developmental disabilities, mostly autism. Uh, the place was established in 1971. So people have been advocating against it for over 50 years. And like you say, if, you know, if I told the next 10 people I passed on the street about this place, every one of them is going to say the same thing. How could that be legal? So, I mean, that's an interesting question because this, you know, the school, I mean, somehow, sometimes people 
imagine that this is like a tingly little reminder shock. Like um, we've all had that experience where you touch the toaster with a wet hand and it's like, oh, you know, uh, but you refer to a situation that happened in um, 2002 where this young man uh, came into his classroom, they call it. It's not really a school. They don't really provide education. They provide, you know, residential facility. He, the staff person in the room told him to take off his jacket. He didn't take off his jacket. He didn't give her the finger. He didn't say F you. He just didn't take off his jacket. So the first shock he received was for failing to follow directions. And then he was tied to a four point restraint board, face down, spread eagle. And he was uh, shocked another uh I think 41 times over seven hours, not being allowed to get up to, you know, stretch his muscles. And he, and so um, that his mom sued the, the facility for malpractice. He is the person you were talking about who, you know, I mean, when she went up to see him a couple of days later, he was diagnosed as being catatonic. Um, and he still is not the same. His mother is still a strong advocate against this stuff. When that case went to court, which was until 2012, that video of him being shocked became public. And the public got to see what I've known all along is that this isn't a tingly little reminder shock. This is a fall on the floor, screaming in agony, clawing at your arm, incredibly painful shock that goes on for two seconds. Two seconds doesn't sound that long, but when you're being shocked, like a cattle prod uh, gives a much less um, strong shock. Um, a cattle prod is a 0.4 milliamper shock. And this, this device is called the graduated electronic decelerator. Uh, they invented it. They designed it there. They hired electrical engineers to design it at this facility. They manufacture it there. Uh, so the cattle prod, uh, 0.4 milliampers, this graduated electronic decelerator, 91 milliampers. So, I mean, people who have experienced it describe it as as the most painful thing they can imagine. A, um, a researcher from Washington and Lee University, this uh, professor named James Eason, he's a, a biomedical engineer. He uh, specializes in studying pain. He said the lowest amount of shock that they deliver at the Judge Rotenberg Center is roughly twice what pain researchers have said is tolerable for humans. So this is horrifying stuff. And when that, when that video became public, uh, people got to see how horrifying it is. Um, there was a way back, like in, I think 1975, there was a, or 1995, there was a legislative hearing in Boston about it in Massachusetts to, Massachusetts has tried to outlaw it dozens of times, to no avail. That's an interesting story in, it, in itself, the politics that allow this to continue. But at that legislative hearing in 1995, a state legislator, James DePaulo, you know, he was like up on the stage and he was fooling around with the device and he put it on his forearm just to see what it felt like. And he shocked himself and he fell on the floor, screamed, clawed at his arm. I mean, there's nobody who was in the room that day that could forget this, you know, grown adult who anticipated it happening and what it felt like for him to shock himself for, you know, for an instant. So it is quite horrifying. Uh, people there are, they carry the device in a backpack. Um, the device has electrodes, wires that come out of the backpack, and those are attached to various parts of people's bodies, to their arms, their legs, their stomach, the soles of their feet, the palms of their hands, you know, various uh, places. And like you say, it can cause 
you know, third degree burns. I spoke to a woman who had been there who said that when she went home for a visit, her mother saw her stomach and her mother took her to the hospital to, and to say like, you know, what is this big infected area on your stomach? It was the burn from where this electric shock device had been. So uh, it well, is. That, that's important that you just said that because there's a lot of people out there listening. Like how could parents send their kids to a place like this? And I'm like, I don't think they probably know what's exactly going on there. I'm, I've seen a lot of the stories and so many of the parents are doing everything they possibly can to get this place shut down and make sure that nobody ever goes through this pain again. Get news time. It's actually the example I used in the beginning. In 2021, nobody really caught this article or caught this story because there was a UAP article and then there was an article about COVID. And I'm like, of course, the public's going to be more worried about like grandma dying and, you know, UFOs like everyone wants so bad. But I saw this and this came across it. And that's when I started using it as an example to at least talk about it more on my podcast, at least to let people know out there that there is something like this happening. Now, I wish I could be doing more. I definitely could be doing more when it comes to advocacy. But there's a lot of people that like, even when I say it, like, I was telling you, it sounds like it's conspiratorial, sounds like it's not real, which makes me question, is this place medically like certified? Is it established? Is this all a concept of oversight that maybe nobody's addressing these institutions so much? There's like been tons and tons of oversight. They're extremely powerful. They're politically powerful. There was in um, 2010, I wrote to the FDA and said, look, they're advertising this on their website, this device as being uh, FDA approved when it is not. And so FDA, you might want to let them know that they're not allowed to say it's FDA approved when it's not. And by the way, since you're in charge of food and drugs and medical devices, how about doing something about it? It took them 10 years to get it together. They eventually banned the use of electric shock for behavior control. The facility challenged that in court and won. And so the facility basically said the FDA doesn't have the right to, that the FDA in deciding that you can't use electric shock to punish people was trying to practice medicine and that that wasn't what the FDA is supposed to be doing. And they won. And it, uh, you know, it's unclear now whether there's any way forward for the FDA. They could revise it. They could revise their ban and reword it and they can try again. But since it took 10 years for them to do it in the first place, uh, took 10 years for them to do it. But when the Judge Rotenberg Center challenged it, they got a response within 24 hours. So uh, you asked earlier about parents because a lot of times People say that too, like what kind of parents would let that happen to their kid? And one answer is what you just said, which is the parents don't know what's going on. The parents of the guy in the videotape, uh, his name is Andre McCollins and people could look up this video of him being shocked. It's on YouTube, Andre McCollins, electric shock, you'll find it and you'll get to see it. Um, you know, his mom said, I had no idea. Um, I, I knew that they were using electric shock, but again, I imagined something like a little mild, like reminder, like he's about to do something dangerous. He's about to put his hand through a plate glass window. I'm just going to give him this little tingling reminder to stop. And she was, you know, horrified to see what it was really like for him. But uh, not all parents are against it. There's uh, one of the reasons the place still exists is that a lot of the parents whose sons and daughters are there, they're not children anymore. There are children there, but most of the people there are now adults. There are people who have been there for 30 and 40 years. Um, a lot of those parents are staunch advocates. And, you know, to some extent, the system has failed them. They've tried other facilities and they kids got kicked out of other residential facilities. But I think the biggest part of it is that if you're a parent and you make a decision to allow your kid or to send your kid to a place like this, you darn well better convince yourself and the world at large that you've done right by your kids. So you are really 
you know, trying to convince people that this is the only option. The facility will say, your kid would be dead if it wasn't for us. Your kid would be drugged up laying on the floor of a state institution if it wasn't for us. What I always, you know, my background is in providing positive behavior support to people who have significantly dangerous behaviors. There are people who have significantly dangerous behaviors. Mostly people are protesting the crappy lives that we offer people with disabilities. I say we because my background is in the, you know, residential services field. And so, you know, people don't have a lot of opportunity to express themselves and to have impact. We have so much control over people with disabilities that one way that they can try to impact their lives is by acting in expressive ways. And one way to address it is to just give people choice and control over their life, because that's what that there probably is no greater human impulse than to be in charge of your own life. And that's what we rob people of. And so, you know, a, a lot of these facilities failed people. And for a lot of parents, they feel it was their last resort. And until something happens to your kid there, there have been six people who've died while in uh, the, I'll say, care of the facility. Um, until something happens to your son or daughter, a lot of parents advocate and support it staying open. And that's a, a big reason why it's still open is because some parents advocate against it, but a lot of parents advocate for it. Do you think it's just because of the some parents that advocate for it is because maybe their child does have something that seems like this is like the only fix at the time, but it's just what they've tried that works. It's rather than trying something new or different. It's just, it's not really, I wouldn't say lazy parenting, but I mean, if it's effective, a lot of people go, well, why, why mess with it? If it's effective, it's like, yeah, but you don't, you're not experiencing it. Like, for me, if you're going to apply shocks, much like for a cop to have a taser, you have yeah. to be tasered. So you, you should, should be it. shocked, and at least so yeah. you know. I mean, I was yeah. taught that when we had a dog collar on our dog that yeah. was shocked. I put it on real quick, and I was like, crank it to 10 and then hit the 1. And then they hit the 10. That hurt like I can't even imagine um, explaining in words, but a one was okay. So I was like, I'll probably just not going to elevate past one on my dog if I'm ever going to shock it. But you have more respect. Right. And by or, the way, a dog collar is between 4.8 and 5 milliampers. This is at point and again, nine something. This is uh, 90. Oh my God. Between uh, the, the average milliampers is 90. So 90 compared to what you experienced, which is four, between four and five. Um, I don't think this is any parent's first, second or 22nd choice. I think when parents get to the point of their son or daughter being sent here, now this is parents of people who have significant disabilities. Uh, I, you know, I think they're kind of at the end of their rope and, it's a failure of the system. I mean, one time, you know, I, I, like I say, I, I can tell you how I got involved in this, but I've been advocating against this place for over 30 years. And, um, you know, I, I did go and experience it and feel it. But I, I do think that parents are just frustrated. At one time, I suggested uh, the vast this place is in Massachusetts. It's in Canton, Massachusetts, but the vast majority of people come from New York, and the vast majority of those come from the New York City and its boroughs. I suggested I wrote a proposal to the state of New York saying, "Let me bring the best minds in positive behavior supports to New York. Let's develop." residential providers in New York. Let's keep people from New York in New York and provide them quality, humane and effective services in your state. Um, you know, that hasn't happened. The state is trying to bring people back. In fact, New York state is in the process of trying to pass a law um, that would prohibit people from being sent there. There probably have been more state reviews scathing state reviews from New York state reviewers, uh, licensing kinds of reviewers than there have been for Massachusetts. And yet New York and, and these reviews, we would read these reports and just think, well, what the heck are you doing sending people there? I mean, the electric shock is the most uh, 
horrifying of what they do to people there, but it's not the least of what they do to people there. They do horrible things to people there. And so they deprive people of food, they restrain people for days and hours, even weeks at a time. I mean, there's, um, there's, you know, at least a history of horrible things done to people. Um, well, what's the punishments? Because I know when you get they get shocked, the reason why he got shocked so many times was being, I guess, unorderly or that he was making noise when he would get shocked or he would move when he okay, was getting so, shocked. Okay, so like I said, the first time he got shocked was for failing to follow directions, for not taking off his jacket. All of the additional times, the next um, 40 times, he was shocked either for screaming while being shocked or for tensing his muscles in anticipation of a shock. It's human nature to scream while being shocked. It's human nature. I, I don't know. mean to laugh, but what the hell? I know, like horrifying. any normal person that's getting shocked, you're going to react as such. And this is you where cannot, you cannot even control it. It's, you know, and so there's documentation of people being shocked for closing their eyes for not following directions, for taking their eyes off their work or stopping work for more than 10 seconds, for failing to maintain a neat appearance, for getting out of your seat, for interrupting, for swearing. And I just uh, was talking to somebody who said uh, she got shocked for swearing, for saying, oh God, okay, not exactly a swear in my book, uh, she also told me that she got shocked for making sexual gestures. Now, I could only think of one sexual gesture, which was giving somebody the finger. She said, oh, no, it was blowing a kiss to somebody across the room. That's okay. not a sexual gesture. That's a sign of think, affection. That's what I would think. Uh, there was a woman who um, I just interviewed who said that she was um, uh, uh, you know, punished for speaking Spanish, even though Spanish is her native tongue, you know, her her mother language. So um, really, um, it's all about control. It's all about making sure people know that they're not in control. And really what people with disabilities, what people with behavioral issues need is to be have more choice and control, not to have every ounce of that stripped away from them. People get me wrong. They think I'm like super into politics. The only reason I'm into politics is because I don't like it when someone has a lot of power and they see you, they see that you're on a different playing field because they hold it all. And this is what you'll find when I came across this. Actually, I have, I have a question. Did you look at the history of this place? Was it a slow decline into the position? Because I know they didn't just start off with this type of shocking mentality. They had to work their way up to it to develop a system in place where I go, this is the sliding power of control. I mean, eventually people, anybody even gives you a, a you know, they give you a, a breath of air or something like that after a sentence You go up, oh, that's, that's back talking. And then they shock you. It, they could not have started that way. Well, you know, um, with Jan Nisbet, uh, she and I just published a book um, Shut up about, on can I show it on screen? Yeah. So it's called Pain and Shock in America, Politics, Advocacy, and the Controversial Treatment of People with Disabilities. Um, and really, we wrote it to answer that very question is like, how did we get to this place? It's published by Brandeis University Press. And um, it's a tough read, uh, but if people really wanna know what kind of country we live in that would allow this to happen to people and why neither the state nor federal government has been able to do anything about it and how a nonprofit organization, I mean, the Judge Rotenberg Center, sort of ironically, they have assets of, uh, in their last published um, tax documents, $40 million, and they have brought in uh, almost $80 million in revenue that year, uh, which was 2019. Um, you know, and yet they're a nonprofit. How does a nonprofit organization gain that kind of power so that people are afraid to legislate or regulate against them. They've many times pushed back against the state of Massachusetts that's tried to control what they have, uh, can do to people. Um, and there, there's been very little success in the 35 years I've been doing this. I'd say we've achieved very little. 
Um, and that's because they're enormously powerful. They spend a lot on lawyers. And that year in 2019, that's the that's the most recent year that they're, you know, a nonprofit organization still submits a tax document. They don't pay tax, but they submit a, a document to the IRS. Uh, so in 2019, they spent over $2 million in lobbying fees and legal fees to push, you know, to protect their right to do this to people. Um, so do you just need more advocacy? Because I feel like I don't think I know we talk about like America, like it, I think it definitely with the corporations, it's an, it's a type of thing of like, this is a sliding thing of power. It's a lot of thing of money. But when it comes to the general public not knowing, it's just because they're I don't think they're aware. I wasn't aware. And when I found out I was aware, I immediately started to care. But also, it's really hard to get lawmakers or anybody in a position of power to be like the voice of change in these aspects, unless their kid is involved. If their kid's involved in it, yeah, they'll be involved in it and they'll make change. They'll make these laws happen. But if you look like when I was reading this, I started remembering like I was having images in my head of Willowbrook State School. You remember yeah. that? Sure, so of course. That's the it's the exact same thing. These methods have not been looked at. They haven't been changed. They haven't. It's just the same template moving over with more harmful technology. We know so much now about what works for people with disabilities. The last 15 years of my career, I spent working with agencies that provide community supports to people with disabilities. Um, we work with you know, um, hundreds and hundreds of agencies and people who work in that field and try to get them. Now, these aren't people that run facilities like this. They're not people that run state institutions like Willowbrook. They're people that run community service agencies and group homes and day programs in every state across the country and trying to get them to rethink this idea that we know best, that we should be in charge, that we should control what people can do, that we should control people's money, and to give people with disabilities back their, their right to, to live their own life. That doesn't mean without support. That means helping each person to figure out what kind of life they want and to help them to be successful achieving that life. And and to provide the supports they need to be safe and successful. So a lot of that has to do with helping people figure out what they what their passion is, you know? So if you like square dancing or bird watching or NASCAR racing or making model trains, there are other people in your community that are into that. And that's how people make connections. We've robbed people of that ability to, uh, to have, people in their lives who love them and, and and to have relationships and friendships. So that's the whole other answer to this. But meantime, while we push forward in people having good lives, we forget that there's this ball and chain uh, dragging behind us of people who are still experiencing horror every day. This place exists today. They're using electric shock today as we speak. Um, and so I don't know what it would take for it to go away. I thought um, I thought the FDA ban uh, would do the trick, but it was immediately um, challenged in court. And so um, I, I, people have been advocating against it. There are advocates. We are well organized. We, you know, have done lots and lots of different things. Um, We've, we've achieved very little. There have been some regulatory actions in Massachusetts, but very little. It's, you know, I think it boils down to society's ability to um, separate ourselves from people with disabilities. You know, he's disabled, I'm not, my kid isn't, his kid is. Uh, and, and as a result, we allow things to be done to people with disabilities that I'm, I'm telling you, if we knew that they were using electric shock like this on, you know, the elderly at the nursing home or even the animals at the animal shelter, if, the, if they were doing this to animals at the animal shelter, PETA would be out there picketing and breaking in and getting animals out of there and protecting them. But when we hear it's happening, you know, let me just go back a little bit and talk a little bit about how I, I first got involved in this, 
which was I was hired by the state of Delaware to uh, help them um, bring people who had who Delaware had sent out of state back to Delaware. So every state, or at least almost every state, I don't think Alaska does this, but every other state, uh, sends tough to serve people out of state. It's a way of kind of washing their hair of them. Like, you know, we don't know what to do with this kid in our schools. We don't have a placement for him. So we're gonna send him and make him somebody else's problem. So Delaware wanted to bring everybody back because once those, those people are usually sent out by the school district. When you're a kid, you have a legal right to a free and appropriate education. And so the school district, regardless of your disability, has to serve you. One way they can serve you is by shipping you out of state. Uh, once you turn 22, you're no longer the financial responsibility of the schools, of the school systems. You're now the financial responsibility of the State Department of Developmental Disabilities, which is called different things in different states, but every state has one. And, and now these places are expensive. Um, so um, the Judge Rotenberg Center costs something like $260,000, $280,000 per person per year. So Delaware wanted to bring back all of its people who they say have aged out of school services, mostly because it was a cost savings to bring them back, but also because they wanted to provide them better services. And so they hired me to put together a team and to go visit every person from Delaware who was in an out-of-state facility. And I went to the Judge Rotenberg Center to visit two young men who were from Delaware who were there. And, um, you know, was standing observing one of these guys and he glances up. Now, this was before uh, the electric shock device had been developed. So this guy glances up at us because we're there and, you know, different and strangers and watching him. And the, the staff person grabs him from behind, pulls down this hydraulic water hose that runs along the ceiling of the whole place, spray, 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 sprays him in his face till he's soaking wet. He doesn't even stop to wipe his eyes. He just goes right back to work. Later that day, uh, they grab this little girl. She was probably seven or eight years old and they drag her into another room. The staff person says, come, come with me. So I go and they make her kneel down on a little wooden bench. They, um, strap down her hands to a little bench in front of her. Her feet are strapped behind her. They put this helmet over her head, like a welder's helmet that comes around her chest. It has a window in front of her eyes, but that window is painted black, so it's dark in there. And there's water spraying rhythmically in her face. And she needs to stay strapped down like that till she stops struggling for 15 minutes, which was a long, long time, over an hour. And I said to the staff person, well, look, I was in the room. I'm a behaviorist. I was observing. I'm observant. I do this for a living. What did she do? I didn't see her do anything. She made an unnecessary noise. She had made some sort of little mumbling, sighing noise under her breath that was so insignificant. I didn't even hear it. Um, and that's what she was punished for. That night, we went to the group homes where people live. They go to the facility, they call it a school, but it's you know a day program during the day, a big building, and then they go back and they sleep in these group homes. And when I, when I was in the group home, I was like, well, where did they eat? I mean, they got right out of the van from the day program. They went to school from like seven in the morning till seven at night. They got out of the van, they marched right into little work carols, exactly like their work carols at the facility, at the, at the main building. And now instead of sorting nuts and bolts because they were at work, now they're sorting plastic spoons and forks because that's home-like materials at home. And I realized, well, you know, I was a consultant. I've probably gone out to lunch at some point, but I didn't see anybody eat. So they, and they were at this home, there was no table for people to eat at. So where do they eat? When do they eat? So they say, oh, they can earn little tablespoon size portions 
little paper cups, like the little cup that you get to get salad dressing at, at the, at the restaurant, they can earn a tablespoon or two of food from seven in the morning till noon. And they can, that's a breakfast, and they can earn a tablespoon of food from noon till four o'clock. But if they haven't earned any food by seven o'clock, they'll give them ground cold chicken with liver powder spread on it, sprinkled on it, so that they have some calories. I mean, there's examples of people who were getting uh, 20% of the number of calories that it took to maintain their ideal weight. So, you know, people are starving and that's one way that they control people. Anyway, when I left there, hang on, hang on, say, hang yeah. on. I, I try and keep in my mind because right now all I want to do is scream at those people that work there that are doing that and letting this happen to those people. But then I try and remember that there was a guy who left, I think the Rotenberg center in like 2003 or 2004 or something like that. And he became a person that talked about giving shocks to people. Now that's a whistleblower, even though you can hate him for the things that he did do, but the fact that he recognized how horrible it was and became a voice to speak about it. When we talk about like hating these people, as much as I can say, I do right now for just the things you told me, I get, I have to keep in mind that also, if we stigmatize the, the people that are working there and make them seem like they're enemies, and when they, as soon as they walk out in the street, they're going to get beat with bats, you're going to have less people speaking out about this, which keeps these things going on for years and years and years. It's literally a snake biting its own tail. I mean, we know about this center, but how many of them have legs and they move around all over different states and everything like that, that we just can't track? It moves around to different states. I mean, it was in California and it was in Rhode Island, but but um, you're talking about Greg Miller, and he was a whistleblower, um, and he did a, a great deal for the advocacy effort, and he revealed a great deal of, of horrible things that went on there. He wrote a lot and published a lot. Um, he, I mean, you, you, there's a lot of research on what torture does to the torturer. You know, he stayed as long as he could, because he felt that by being there, he was protecting people to some degree. Um, but he was tortured by what he did uh, when he was there. And, you know, when I left there back then in 1993, um, I, a, a young man grabbed my arm as I was leaving a resident and he grabbed my arm and he said, miss, 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 can you help me? Can you help us? You got to get us out of here. You don't know what they do to people here. And I, I have always felt guilty that I never knew his name. Um, I don't know his name now, um, but uh, his voice rings in my head. And so from that moment, I mean, I left there and I thought, I got to do something about this place. I, I personally need to do something about this. The first thing I did was I wrote this whole scholarly paper about the use of electric shock and, and painful procedures and controlling the behavior of people with disabilities. And I, Amnesty International was having its, um, Amnesty USA, Amnesty International USA was having its annual meeting in Boston that year. I called the their person who was in charge of uh, the meeting. And I said, I wanna, I wanna present, I wanna speak at your meeting. I wanna tell about this place. Uh, at that time, the place was in Rhode Island. And I said, like, you know, you're gonna be in Boston. This place isn't a half hour from you. And so I told him just basically what I just told you. And he said, uh, well, oh my gosh, like, what is this place? This is a, a, a juvenile delinquent See a facility for juvenile delinquents. What is this place? I said, no, it's this, it's a facility for kids with autism. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, we don't get involved in that. I said, well, I know you don't, but why? He's like, well, you know, we're not doctors. We don't know what people like that need. I was like, well, yeah, I don't know that you would need to have any particular set of letters after your name to know that people should be treated that way, right? So I've got to say that since then since 1993, I have done everything I can think of to try to get Amnesty's and International's attention on this issue. Everything. I mean, I, I, I could talk for an hour about just how I've tried to engage Amnesty, including just a few years ago, 
realizing that the woman who was their vice president of their board was a, a legal, a law professor here in Baltimore, where I live. And so I, I, I wrote to her and I said, can I take you out to lunch? Because clearly I'm not doing something right and trying to get attention for this issue from Amnesty. So maybe you could just tell me what I could do better, you know, like how I could get Amnesty to care about this, which is torture, which the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Torture said is torture. So where is Amnesty on this issue? I did take her to lunch. We did have a lovely lunch. She did assure me that Amnesty was going to do something. Um, followed up with her and the you know executive director and the chairman of the board, you know, ten times probably since then. Uh, even when I was writing the book, you know, said like I'd love to say something in the book that's you know more positive than I just can't get Amnesty interested, but. Um, so after I wrote that paper back in 1993, uh, there was a journalist named Lucy Gwynn who called me up and she said, I just read your paper and I'm, I'm sitting here sobbing. You and I are going to close this place down. I'm like, yeah, well, uh, people have tried before us. Like, uh, how are we going to do that, Lucy? And so her idea was we're going to put an ad in the Providence Journal and we're going to say, journalist wishes to, to interview current and former employees. So we did that. And uh, Lucy and I interviewed, you know, I don't know, 100, 120 people or so. And, and we took copious notes. We recorded interviews where we were allowed to. And we um, wrote up two or three pages of direct quotes from these interviews. And we sent them to 60 Minutes. Um, back then, the way you sent things to 60 Minutes had to do with a stamp and an envelope, you know, so we mailed it to 60 Minutes and uh, in three days, like sooner than you can really imagine them getting it there on the phone. Yes, they're interested in this story. They gave the story to um, Connie Chung, who did an amazing job with the story. She had a news magazine show called Eye to Eye with Connie Chung, and she covered it back in um, I think it aired in March of 94. I was so sure in my youth and naivete, I was so sure that once this hit the light of day, that people would rise up, that there would be outcry, that people would say, not in my country, we're not doing this to people in my country. Uh, I'd say, not a ripple, uh, except that I lost my job over it. But other than that, I'd say, not a ripple. So um, Wait, you lost your job over trying to help out with this. Um, I worked for uh, the Kennedy Krieger Institute. I was the director of community services. And I when I did this advocacy work, I made it very clear. I wrote this paper in my personal capacity. Whenever I sent out a copy of the paper, I said I'm, I do this advocacy work in my personal capacity. I ran a behavior support project uh, at Kennedy Krieger Institute that was way out on the positive end of the continuum. It was way about giving people choice and control and not punishing or controlling people in any way. Um, but Kennedy also runs an inpatient behavior unit. They don't use electric shock. I don't know really what they do now, but they did then use some what we call aversive procedures, procedures that cause discomfort or pain. And when I was working with Connie Chung on this on this um, TV show, uh, I went to the president of Kennedy Krieger and I said, so they want to interview me for this. I can't really just be Nancy Weiss, whoever. I need to be Nancy Weiss, um, director of community services for Kennedy Krieger Institute, right? And he's like, yeah, it's not about us, right? It's about the school in Massachusetts, right? It was in Rhode Island at the time. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's not about Kennedy. It's about, yeah. So he says, yeah, I have no problem with it. I left there and I thought, hmm, well, okay. But, you know, Kennedy also buttered its bread using some of the same, not, you know, not the same extent, but the same, the same things that I was advocating against. Uh, the week the show aired, uh, I lost my job there. So uh, they say it had nothing to do. I mean, actually, uh, they just made my life difficult enough that I resigned. But um, it was clear that that was 
what needed to happen. Do you think that this is going to be an institutionalized problem that's going to be fixed, like with enough advocacy behind it? I know you, you, you kind of belittle the work that you've done, but I think you've done honestly a lot. It's just very, very hard to get the public connected on a topic that a lot of people don't have enough education on. Like if they taught kids more about like for me, when I was a kid, even though I had ADHD and they considered that a disability, there were people that were actually severely disabled in a wheelchair that couldn't move and would have freakouts. And the, I still give this teacher credit to the day. He has a daughter that has the same issue. And this kid freaked out and started throwing things and punching and screaming. And he walked over and the kid punched him. And instead of flipping out like a normal teacher probably would or something, he hugged the kid and held him there. And the kid sat there, had a little fit and then calmed down. And it was the first time in fourth grade when you're like 11 years old and you're like, you're this young and you don't know, this is something that's like, it impacts you. And it also makes you think about the amount of kids that are suffering, that are being either shocked or being starved or something like that at such a young age. You think that's not going to have a psychological impact into their mind? This should get people riled up. This is not just an issue of you. This is not just an issue of me. This isn't just an issue of parents. This is an issue of this. This is an issue that needs to be fixed from the core because the foundation is broken. I hate to it's say like it in who such- who we are. It's nuts. And I, I, I like, I don't, my, my honestly, my biggest fear is having a kid with a, a disability because I don't know how, I, I don't know if I'd be equipped. That's a scary thing for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's true of everybody, but you know, everybody, nobody imagines that they'll be equipped, but people do rise to the occasion. And it's just a lack of understanding. Uh, uh, there's, there's something, uh, you know, there's this, I mean, I, I think the vast majority of people that get into working in the disability field go in for all the right reasons. And then there are those people who like to be bossy and control people. And they like the idea of the power that they can have over people. And those people are dangerous. Um, I, not too long ago, I was contacted by a woman who said that she lost her job because she was a um, aide in a kindergarten classroom. And she reported the teacher because when the kids, if a child in the kindergarten classroom would cry, the teacher would put a big metal popcorn tin, like the kind of big metal popcorn tin that you get at Christmas over the kid's head and bang on it with a wooden spoon until the kid stopped crying. So it's like, where do we get that from? You know, and, and I mean, lately I've been spending a lot of time interviewing past residents of the Judd Rotenberg Center and what I say to all of them, I mean, some of them start out by saying like, I was a bad kid, you know? No, you weren't a bad kid. You were a kid who, ha who had a tough life and a tough environment and you were struggling. And you know, what you needed wasn't somebody to strip you of every ounce of power over your life. What you needed was somebody who would talk to you and listen to you and support you and give you some tools so that you could know what to do when you were about to hurt yourself or hurt somebody else or or act in a way that was dangerous or disruptive. So, I mean, there's a, a very well-known uh, past resident, you might've read some of her work. Her name is Jennifer Masumba, M-S-U-M-B-A. You can find her work. She's also an amazing musician and a filmmaker and um, she is a past resident. And really it was her letter to me that she, she first wrote to me a letter about her experience. And back when she first wrote the letter, she wanted to remain anonymous. I just used her name because now she doesn't care about remaining anonymous. She, she wants her name to be out there. And, and I mean, she she's brilliant and she has enormous recall about what happened to her there. And it's just, it's just horrifying, uh, the stories that people tell about what was done to them there and you know and and you can't tell a staff that you're allowed to hurt and abuse people in some ways and then assume that the staff isn't going to also do that in ad hoc kinds of ways you know putting a can a popcorn can over a kid's head was not something that a psychologist probably put in anybody's program but um, there is lots, I mean, the people who I've talked to have reported just a lot of, you know, they were being restrained and their flesh was being pinched and twisted and they were being touched between their legs and the women were being touched on their breasts and, you know, just a lot of ad hoc 
control and uh, I mean and abuse because uh, because there's there's something about some people where they like to just boss people around and and have power over them and hurt them probably because they've been hurt and hurt people hurt people so um you know there's there have been dozens of you know police being called to group homes at Judge Rotenberg Center, dozens of incidents of staff, you know, using belts against people and just, you know, I mean, it is just a, a terrifying place and people live there in a state of constant terror. Do you it's have hard any, to imagine. Do you have any of the, the people that stayed there that miss it now that it's gone? No, no. no. Okay. No, I have never spoken to a person who, I mean, most people I speak to are very hurt and broken and who, like you just said, their fear is having a kid with a disability. Their fear is having a kid that would be sent there. Um, and they, there's, I ask people at the end of the interview, is there anything that was helpful to you? Is there anything that you feel like you took away that even though it, the experience was tough, did help you. And I haven't had one person say one thing. And Jennifer Masamba, who I mentioned later, she, I mean, before she talked about later being in a facility where, you know, if, if she had these feelings that she was gonna have a behavioral incident, they gave her so many tools and choices at the Judge Rotenberg Center, you're not allowed to talk to staff. You're not allowed to have conversations and they don't believe in counseling or you know, that kind of supportive conversation even. So, you know, Jennifer says now at this place that she went to, you know, they helped her to get a dog. She can hang out with her dog. She can, they got her a piano. She can play music. She um, can go for a walk, she can go play basketball, she can go fishing, you know, she, I mean, she's, she does a million fun things. And, you know, she just said, like, they gave her all these tools that became part of herself so that she could say, oh, you know, I'm getting that feeling. I have tools that I can use to calm myself down, but they don't, I mean, it's all external. It's, it's, you know, the, I mean, they've had to reinvent the electric shock device two or three times because the first device wasn't strong enough. So they had to come up with a, a stronger device because, you know, it, I mean, it, it is when you, when you talked about why do parents allow their kids to go there, it is effective. I mean, nobody, I mean, they could get you and I to do anything they want if they shocked us, you know, so um, it does work, but it only works for the period of time when it's being used. And as soon as they stop using the punishment, the behaviors, but I first went there in 1993, the guy who was the founder, Matt Israel, showed me this data, which was like, here's this person, they came in and they were doing this behavior, you know, X number of times a day. That's what we call baseline, however it was at the beginning. And then they introduced the electric shock and it went way down to, you know, only this three or four times a day. But then the state stopped allowing them to use the electric shock and the behaviors went not only back to baseline, but then the person was doing it even more frequently than they had been doing it before. So he's trying to say to me, see, it works. And to me, uh, my interpretation is, see, it doesn't work because yes, it works while you're using it. As soon as they stopped using it and as soon as people figured out you're not going to get shocked for taking your eyes off your work or for standing up or for whispering, then the behaviors came right back to wherever they were and beyond. So, um, you know, I mean, the, 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 the goal is to give people tools that they can use and make a part of themselves and to give them better lives that they don't need to protest against. I mean, it's just so self-fulfilling that you, and so many of the people I've interviewed said, I wasn't even a violent person when I got there, but they egged me on. They made me that way. If I wasn't violent, I would have been shocked, you know, over and over. I needed to protect myself. So it's so, it's so illogical to me that you would take somebody who is trying to convey that they want more choice and control 
and take away every ounce of choice and control. It doesn't make any sense. I think um, what you're doing is very, very important. I think a lot of people are going to hear that. And there are a lot of people are going to notice that, especially with your book as well, too. Um, it's a very tough subject. Honestly, I felt myself tearing up a couple of times. It's just because you don't want to like when you hear these stories, when you read about them, especially like when I was reading about some of the cases that happened there, it's just it's unimaginable. You wouldn't think that in today's time and age that that would be happening. You know, this is something that you read about that happened like 100 years ago or something like that. But you're like, we have iPhones, you know, this is this is new technology. But even then, like you can't do anything about when it's like 100 years ago, but it's happening still here now. And you can do something about it. I mean, main advocacy for I'm just surprised we don't see more media coverage on it. It seems like they just it's not in their eye. It's not something that they want to really promote. And it, it really kind of sucks because you have these giant institutions that do have these lobbying powers of being able to be connected with all this, you know, up up there forces. And next thing you know, you don't ever hear about it. I know. There was an, uh, an interesting incident in uh, 2007 where, you know, like I said, the people who are there now very often are not people with severe disabilities. They're, you know, tough New York City kids or adults or young adults. And there was an incident where one of those young men ran away from the group home. Um, I, I actually don't know whether he ran away or he was home on a home visit. I've heard both um, both stories, but he was not at the group home. He called in the middle of the night and he said that he was from the quality assurance place. So everything is video there. Everything is reviewed. Uh, not uh, um, with some regularity, the quality assurance people would call the group home and say, we were watching the videotapes and, you know, Joe did something at two o'clock this afternoon and we forgot to punish him for that. So wake him up in the middle of the night and punish him. So this kid who had run away called and said he was from Quality Assurance, wake up these two young men, tie them to four point restraint boards, give one of them 77 shocks and give the other one 29 shocks. And um, it turned out later they found out it was a hoax. The staff didn't hesitate. It's not that unusual. The staff went ahead and woke up these guys who of course were saying we didn't do anything and the staff is like yeah sure of course you did um and and you know later it turned out that it was a prank um you can you know this is a, um, all this stuff you can research you know not just on wikipedia you were saying people don't believe what's on wikipedia i don't sometimes too but it's all you know there are news stories about all of this there's nothing in our book that's not well documented in news stories Eventually, Matt Israel, the guy who's the founder, you know, who's an interesting story in and of himself, he lost his job over this prank, not for allowing people to be tortured. That's not why he lost his job, just like Al Capone lost his, you know, he uh, was um, um, got in trouble for tax evasion, I think. So Matt Israel got in trouble for because there were videos of this incident and the state came in and said to him, don't destroy that video because that's now state's evidence and he destroyed it. So he got, he was indicted uh, for destroying state's evidence and um, not, you know, not for what happened, but he was already, you know, well into his 70s. He already made a, a load of money on the backs of these people. And um, he retired to California where he, his wife lives, where his wife ran a similar sort of facility. Um, so I'm sure it's not the best way to end a career, but, you know, he's still out there. And I thought that the facility, like it might, his leaving might take some of the wind out of their sails, but it doesn't seem to have. Yeah, it needs to be advocacy um, for more people, especially general public needs to have more knowledge on it, more education. Hoping that's kind of like your message in the book as well, too, just making people more aware. Um, 
I appreciate all the time you've given me to be able to discuss this topic. I know it's probably one you talk about all the time. You probably never get tired of talking about it. You just want this thing to be over with and then you can finally rest, right? It's um, a hard thing to talk about. I yeah. mean, it's not dinner conversation. Yeah. Uh, but where can people find your book? Uh, if you want to show it on screen again and um, we can let people know where to find it, I'll make sure I link it in the description. If you have any social media links as well too, I'll put that in the description as well. Good, I'll send those to you. So it's um, Brandeis University Press. It's available on Amazon and probably everywhere else. So you can buy it right from Brandeis. Um, I would like to send you a copy. Uh, if you'll send me your address, I'll send you a copy of the book. Um, and um, my email is Nancy Robin Weiss, N-A-N-C-Y-R-O-B-I-N-W-E-I-S-S at gmail.com. I am always happy to talk to people about this. There are people who come to me with ideas about how to address this that I've never thought about even in 35 years. So, you know, if you've got some harebrained scheme that you think might work to um, do something effective in terms of advocacy, I'm always happy to talk to people. I'll link it all in the description. I appreciate you for doing the podcast and thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.